I got the words, I got the tune. I've been rehearsing under the moon, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. I got the place, I got the time. I got a lot of love words that rhyme, but I got nobody to hear my song, so I'm humming to myself. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. I am here today to talk about parts three and four, the second half of The Lottery and Other Stories by Shirley Jackson. This is a wonderful collection of short stories. You can hear me rave all about it in my first episode on this, just the previous episode. Um, Just a brief recap, though. The themes of this short story collection are all really uncanny interpersonal relationships, people's attachment to home and the kind of fragility of identity and how identity is attached to place, particularly home. We have uh, a few interesting motifs running throughout the story. One is the character James Harris, who comes from the old English ballad, uh, The Demon Lover. Essentially, it's a demonic figure uh, that shows up in all of these stories to disrupt people's lives or be some kind of um, uh, negative influence. Um, and in the original story, the demon lover, it's essentially the devil who is coming to, comes to seduce a woman. And later on, he returns to her, takes her away from her husband and daughter, who's a house, house carpenter usually. And then she goes to sea with him. And then at sea, they, she's, she's killed. Um, there's different ways it's, it's told. In America, the, the song is House Carpenter, sung by Joan Baez. You can see that on YouTube or sung by Clarence Ashley. Uh, back in the 20s, early recording. That's one motif. The other motif is witchcraft. And we see this in the epigraphs to the four different parts of the short story collection, which have selections from an old witch hunting guide called the Sadducimus Triumphatus. So that is where we'll start. We'll look at the epigraphs to part three. So I'll read it. These epigraphs are very interesting. The Confession of Margaret Jackson, relic of, uh, I think, is it Theodore Stewart in Shaw's, who being examined by the justices anent her of being guilty of witchcraft, declares that 40 years ago or thereabouts she was at Polkashaw Croft with some few sticks on her back and that the black man came to her and that she did not give herself up and that she did give herself up unto the black man from the top of her head to the sole of her foot. And that this was the declarant's renouncing of her baptism and that her spirit's name, which he designed for her, was Locus. And that the fourth, third or fourth of January instant or thereabout in the nighttime she was awakened, she found a man to be in bed with her, whom she supposed to be her husband, though her husband had been dead 20 years, and thereby, and that the man immediately disappeared, and declares that this man who disappeared was the devil. So a very, very interesting little um, piece of evidence from this witch hunting guide focusing on the the. The, the aspect of witchcraft, at least believed witchcraft, which was fornication with the, the devil. Um, so um, witchcraft comes up a lot in these stories, but also deeper into it is just this disconnect between people. And that oddity makes people seem kind of demonic or like witches, especially in part two, which dealt a lot with children. Most of those stories dealt in one way. I think they all dealt in one way or another with childhood and adults and how there is a disconnect between them. And it's, it's just kind of creepy. Maybe most famously, Charlie, about the kindergartner who is very violent and vicious, but to his parents, is just a sweet little kid until it's revealed that their kid is this Charlie who they're 
son has been telling stories about, but it's actually he's telling, you know, stories about what he did, just changing the name. So um, these themes continue, though. They don't go away. They're still children. They're still homes. But there's a little bit of a focus in the different sections. Um, so um, part three. Uh, now, part three and part four both have six stories in them. So it's going to take me a little bit of time to go through. I don't know if it'll be quite as long as the last episode, but, but it could be. We'll see how long it takes. Uh, for me to give me just my initial thoughts of, of these stories. Overall, I think this collection is brilliant. You have to read it. It's um, I know I've given positive reviews to most of the things I've read here just because I think American Lit is is I dig it so much. But definitely these you have of, of any book in this series on women writers, you know, Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. You, you just have to read even more than Hill House, I would say. It's just they're so good. They're so good. So the first story is called Cora, uh, Colloquy. Sorry, Colloquy. It was first published in 1944 in The New Yorker, as many of her stories were published. Uh, the vast majority of these 24 tales were published earlier and reworked a little bit for this collection. About eight or nine or ten or so were published initially in, in the, the lottery. Um, so Colloquy, it's a very, very short tale. It's only two pages long, and it's basically a woman walking into a doctor's office kind of kind of story into a shrink's office and it's all about her kind of getting increasingly confused and and freaked out by the new words just that seem to emerge into popular discourse this is a very contemporary um story in fact because as bad as it may have been in the 40s new words new concepts coming into popular discourse i mean it, it's every day now right that that there's new words from the internet and within months the, this old-fashioned right like okay boomer was a thing a month ago when I recorded this, which is November, right? And it's already kind of a dead meme. Um, it's these, these memes just come and go so fast now. Um, she's talking more about like the, like the journalistic concepts that get discussed in, in the popular press. And she's just doesn't, she, she's just baffled and, and disoriented by this. And that's what she's talking to the shrink about. Um, and, and he really can't help her. I mean, the final line of this is, uh, let me find it. It's at the end. Yeah, I'll read the last uh, bit of the story. It's actually the last, like, fifth of the story because it's so short. Um, International crises, Miss Arnold said. Patterns, she began to cry quietly. He said that the man had no right not to save for a times. She said, she said hysterically, fumbling for a pocket for a handkerchief. And he started talking about social planning on the local level and surtax net income and geopolitical concepts and deflationary inflation. Mrs. Arnold's voice rose to a wail. He really said deflationary inflation. Mrs. Arnold, the doctor said, coming around the desk. We are not going to help things any this way. What is going to help me, Miss Arnold said. Is everyone really crazy but me? Mrs. Arnold, the doctor said severely, I want you to get a hold of yourself. In a disoriented world like ours today, alienation from reality frequently... Disoriented, Miss Arnold said. She stood up. Alienation, she said. Reality... Before the doctor could stop her, she walked to the door, opened it. Reality, she said, and went out. Um, so that's what the story is kind of like, just her freaking out about these words being used that seem um, ah. Now, we've had this experience where if like, you say a word a hundred times, it starts to sound like gibberish, right? We start to lose the, disc the connection between the word and, and its meaning. Uh, you've probably played that game. You know, you could do that pretty much with any word, pigeon, or 
you know, a name even, whatever. It just starts to sound bizarre after a while. That happens. But then you have, you know, these new concepts which seem contradictory or if they're not explained to you, just seem kind of bizarre or sound weird. That's what she's going through. Um, I think the theme here is something we talked a lot about in the Philip Dick series. And that is, you know, is mental illness rooted in the individual or is it rooted in society? And Philip Dick was, seemed to be of the opinion that mental illness was rooted in society and not in the individual. That if individuals were mad, it's because they were products of a mad society. That was a popular idea in the middle of the 20th century more and more. Especially, I think a lot of it came out of World War II. My reading on this, uh, some books on this, and it seems World War II was really key in this because what you had is people who were deemed sane and normal entered the army. They came back from the war shell-shocked, or what we now call post-traumatic stress. Um, and obviously something happened to them, right? It was the madness of the situation. It was the terror of the situation that drove them to some kind of mental illness, not something internal to them, right? And then is that true across society? Does it work drive people to, to this? Does caring for aging parents cause this? I mean, does, does all this just shit of life cause us to have this disorientation? And I think... That um, that um, this story does a really, really good job of articulating that um, feeling in just a few pages. So that is followed one of the shortest, if not the shortest, story in the collection. Is followed by what could be the longest story in the collection, um, Elizabeth. I, I've read this story a few times. I, um, as I read this whole collection a few times, yeah, it's thirty-two pages. Um, so it's one of the longer ones. Um, there's, a, there's a handful of long stories here. The Flower Garden, which we talked about last time, was the longest in that half, I think. Elizabeth, fairly, I think it's the longest in this half, or close to. There's another here that's, that's a competitor, The Tooth. We'll see. Um, but Elizabeth is a really nice story. It's got a classic Shirley Jackson heroine, this aging, unmarried kind of spinster uh, who's... Maybe career-minded. This one definitely is career-minded, but starts to feel her life has reached a dead end. You know, she starts to experience loneliness, and she starts to get bothered by things that used to not bother her. And you know, it seems it's it's this unmarried feeling that that really um, this loneliness, this isolation that starts to wear on them. I don't know if the if Shirley Jackson saying the solution to these women is marriage, because. You know, the married women in these collections aren't doing much better, actually. But there is this kind of motif of this aging, unmarried woman searching for something. You see it in Hill House. You see it in Elizabeth. You see it in Demon Lover. Um, yeah. Yeah, and even the women who are married, the husbands aren't always there. They're out of the picture in some way, right? Like in The, the Renegade, I think that was the case. Um, so anyways, that, that's a classic motif we see a lot in these stories. And it really is maybe best articulated in Elizabeth. So we have the, our, our, our Elizabeth. Our, oh, sorry. This story was first published in the lottery in 1849. So our first, uh, our Elizabeth is named Elizabeth Style. Um, so she's a small time editor, essentially, at a small editing firm. She has her own business with her partner. Um, but it, it's kind of a piddling one. Like, they, they do lower-level writings. I mean, they don't get big names. I think one client they're working on now is, a, like, a reverend who's trying to publish his little book of poems or something. It doesn't sound like that's going to be a New York Times bestseller. But um, 
she's fairly successful though for her her position. So she's got this little business, right? And it's just a day at work of Elizabeth. And the big crisis she faces that really disrupts her day is she finds out that her partner has has um, hired this new secretary named Daphne Hill, who's young, not really experienced. She's beautiful. And she starts to feel old, basically. She starts to feel not beautiful. She starts to feel all those pressures of middle age uh, being exposed to this younger woman. She wants to keep the older secretary that was experienced. Um, so that's what bothers her throughout the day, is this fact. And a few things happen, like, you know, that just kind of uh, further frustrate her throughout the day. One, is, for instance, is the... Um, you know, she's trying to get this look playwright that she encounters, like he works at some place she goes, trying to get this young playwright to finish his play and submit it to her, but she's not having much luck. So that's how kind of desperate she is for clients at this firm is, you know, she's trying to basically ask people on the street to submit their, their plays and things. Um, and she has lunch with her colleague and she's, you know, she, she brings up this issue of, of Daphne and she does it in a very passive aggressive way. That's a real strong motif in Shirley Jackson's writing is the passive aggressive conversation. And Elizabeth certainly has that. She passively aggressive, aggressively suggests that she, that they don't hire this Daphne. And he kind of just says, well, it's my choice or whatever. And she eventually agrees with him. Now, one, another thing they, that she talks about, I think she talks about it with maybe her coworker, um, is this man, James Harris. James Harris is, of course, that running motif, this sort of mnemonic character that usually causes trouble. In this case, it's psychological damage that he inflicts on her. He was like an old business partner. He was like the old business partner, but he went off to do his own firm, and, or they broke off, and then he was supposed to like sh shuffle them clients from time to time, but it didn't work out that well. But she starts to think of him as possible marriage up candidate or whatever, and so you know she's feeling this pressure of middle age. And so she tries to seek him out for a date. And that's, that's kind of what happens at the climax of the novel. And then the other part of the climax is the resolution to the Daphne Hills thing. Is she finally steps up at the end of the day. She can't handle this Daphne girl. And she fires her after one day, actually making her write the letter that, that tells the, the old secretary to come back to work. And it's, she humiliates her and degrades her at the end of the day. Um, you know, that's her little source of power at, uh, over this helpless little secretary. It's actually quite brutal to, to read, I think. Um, so, and she gets like a vague promise of a future date with this Jim Harris, but we only meet him really through the phone. Um, so the story is really about the alienation of urban life, the stresses of urban life, the stresses of professional life, the stresses of, of being an aging woman in America. Again, I don't think Shirley Jackson's solution is necessarily marriage. She doesn't really have a solution for them. You know, Shirley Jackson's own marriage was not that, that good, right? Um, so it's, I think there was violence in that marriage. Or maybe it was adultery or something. Um, you know, she was a heavy drinker, a heavy smoker. She used amphetamines. It was, she, by the time she wrote Haunting of Hill House, she was essentially homebound. Uh, the guy she married, this guy Hyman, was like a literary scholar who, who saw the talent in Shirley Jackson, which anyone who reads her stuff sees immediately too. But, um, you know, there... I don't know that much about it, actually. I never read a biography of her. I'm just looking at the chronology at, um, at, the back of the, at the back of these collections. These are really good, by the way. 
Um, yeah, they met in college, it seems. But anyways, I mean, she had a marriage, but it wasn't a perfect marriage by, um, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's the solution. I just think she's aware that there is uh, an alienation that comes with, with being an aging spinster in, in America. The other major theme here is the threat of Daphne. I mean, that's really, um, you know, she's the antithesis of, of Elizabeth right? and therefore a threat, um, even a, like a threat to her partnership almost, it seems. And then she's got this, she holds out this hope for marriage with, with Jim, with James Harris, which can turn out well because James Harris is not, is, is clearly a demonic figure in these, in these stories. Um, we're basically told that in the second story, Demon Lover. All right. Next, uh, A Fine Old Firm. Um, this was first published in The New Yorker in 1944. It's another nice one about, um, about parents using children. It's, uh, it's a theme I talked about in the last episode, and I think it's such an important theme here. It's just an important theme for, for life. Is The lesson here is don't use children for your purposes, uh, whether it's to live vicariously through them, to... to your retirement plan the way in China that children are sort of used as retirement. That's why there's so much pressure on children is because there's not the best social safety net for old people. So if you don't have a good pension and if you don't have a, or if you don't have a kid who makes a lot of money, you might be in trouble in old age. So you put a lot of pressure on your kids to be your social safety net. You know, I don't think we should do that. I don't think we should use our kids as a plaything. You know, I don't think we should um, dress them up to impress our neighbors or whatever we might do. We should essentially treat them like adults. Um, but the adults in these stories don't treat their kids like adults. They treat them essentially like playthings. And what we have here is, is two women. Uh, make sure I get the names right. There's so many names. Sometimes I just don't bother remembering them. I wrote some of them down. Um, we got a Miss, Miss uh, Concord and her daughter. And they're together. And we got uh, Mr. Mrs. Um, Friedman comes to visit, and they both have sons from the army. So this is a World War II story, 1944, and they both have letters from their sons in the army, and they start to basically compare um, these stories, and they find that these stories don't really jive, which uh, kind of is a, is a weirdness to the story, but it doesn't really go any, anywhere. The real highlight of the story is that Concord, um, Mrs. Concord wants Friedman's son after the army, after the war, to go to her husband's law firm, right? And she refuses him. She refuses this, this offer, having her own plans for her, her son. And obviously here we got parents plotting the future of their kids after the war, after their sons come back. Um, a very, very passive, aggressive conversation. And here a job is, is used to assert social hierarchy, right? So Mrs. Concord um, is is offering a, a position to Mrs. Friedman's son, and then there she's able to assert, Friedman's able to assert her social hierarchy, her command by refusing that job, saying she has got something better for him lined up. So it's again, so it's one of these weird Shirley Jackson conversations between two women or a woman and a man in which there's passive aggressiveness, there's, there's very subtle conflict, there's uh, a, a an inability to to reach a common base. There's a kind of a vindictiveness, a viciousness to these conversations, and we see it again and again and again in these in these stories. Uh, but that's uh, the final firm. It's only a few pages. Um, 
four, five. Okay, but that one is, it's okay. It's not one of my favorites here. Um, the dummy though, the dummy's super, super creepy. Uh, the dummy published in 1949 in the lottery. That's the first place it was published. The dummy is just super, super wild. Um, I mean, we know it's a ventriloquist dummy. That's the dummy and the title is the ventriloquist dummy. And you probably agree with me that there's something a little bit creepy about them. That's why horror shows use horror, horror writers and things use ventriloquists in stories because there is something really creepy. It's, it's that uncanniness, right? Maybe Shirley Jackson invented that motif of the creepy ventriloquist puppet. You know, that you have this thing that's obviously not real talking, you know, articulating, making real human sounds. Um, and you're not sure where the voice is coming from. People can throw their voice quite well, you know, can, can hide it. It's, and, and often you see this in gags about ventriloquist, ventriloquists is the dummy becomes the, the way of expressing the, the ventriloquist's true feelings, right? So if the, ventrilo if the ventriloquist wants to say something nasty about the audience, it's the dummy who does it, right? Not him himself, right? So you, you have that separation between uh, you know, the actor, the ventriloquist, and his true sentiment. And then if you've got the dummy saying, like, really nasty stuff, right, that's really kind of creepy and weird because it seems that's what the ventriloquist wants to say, but there's that separation, right? There's a great Key and Peele sketch that kind of fits this. It's, um, I don't know, it's on YouTube, but basically uh, it's a guy who comes in on his, to his parole officer and it's a, he's a grown man, but the parole officer wants him to talk to this puppet called Little Homie. And the puppet kind of encourages him to commit crimes and, you know, use drugs and stuff. And it's really, really funny, but it, it plays with this idea of the, the deep-seated uh, resentment of the speaker being able to be articulated through a, through a dummy. Um, and, yeah, we've seen this a lot of times if you, if you ever... ever Pretty much, if you've ever seen anything about a ventriloquist, you see these scenes played out. Um, but Shirley Jackson does it really, really well here. Um, so basically, the climax of the story, they're at like a dinner party, or a di no, they're at like a dinner act. It's like one of those places where you, you eat dinner and there's an act on the stage, right? And there's a few acts, but then you got the ventriloquist show up, right? And the ventriloquist seems to be drunk or get progressively drunk throughout the show. And along with that, the, the dummy then gets more and more belligerent. And the climax of it is he starts to kind of verbally attack this little girl with quite vicious language. Um, and eventually one of the protagonists of the story, Mrs. Wilkins, beats the dummy, not beats the ventriloquist, right? It just beats the dummy. So, if, I mean, talk about passive aggressive, right? You want to punish this ventriloquist for getting drunk and being belligerent and nasty, but you can't hit him because he didn't, didn't say anything. It was the dummy, so you have to slap the dummy. Um, so it's kind of funny, but uh, the creepiness is in this, this deep-seated resentment this ventriloquist seems to have towards his audience that just is able to come out when he has a few beers, right? That, that's another theme here is how alcohol kind of breaks down those those barriers and gets us to a place where we're able to articulate what we really, really think, right? So that's the dummy. I really like that story. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, the other next one, 19, uh, the next one uh, is called Seven Types of Ambiguity. This was originally published in a journal called Story, which I never heard of before, in 1943. So it's one of her first stories. And this one is really nice. 
Um, so we have a Mr. Harris. I don't know if that was changed for this collection because Shirley Jackson definitely did edit some of these to fit into the, 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 the motifs of this story. Um, but we have a Mr. Harris, or James Harris, obviously, uh, who's a bookstore owner. We have uh, a Mr. Clark. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's Mr. Clark who, who, who's a student and he hangs out at this bookstore a lot and he wants to buy books, but he, he's poor, right? He's a poor guy. And there's one book in particular he wants to buy called The Seven Types of Ambiguity, um, which is by, who wrote this? Epson, Epsom. It wrote it, and it's like hardcore philosophy. And so this Clark, he is, um, you know, he wants this book, but he can't afford it because it's like rare. It's really expensive. Um, now this dude comes in, this couple comes in, and most of the talking is the is the man, I think. But I don't think we get his name. But he he's just like a working class guy who's like older and about to retire and he decides he wants books and he wants to start reading. He's never had time to read in his life because he's always been working in the factory and now he wants to read. So, you know, I, 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 I dig this. I, I appreciate this. It seems to make sense. I'm not sure Epsom, the way it's described here, is good for him. Seven types of ambiguity. And, and I don't know if he wants, he says he wants to read books and I'm going to believe him. I, I, I think that's great that, you know, people who for example, work haven't had time to enjoy life. Can, can do that later in their life. It's, it's wonderful. It's why I support early retirement if you can get away with it. It's why I think you shouldn't raise your retirement age. I think people who do contribute to society should be able to enjoy all that society offers, as, as shitty as the society may be. And part of that, I think for me at least, is to appreciate books. Someday I'm going to have the entire Library of America collection, I hope. And, and you know, I would just like to sit and read. Um, maybe do podcasts. Maybe continue to do podcasts if you still want me to. Um, so I, I really kind of dug this character who just comes in and wants to buy books. And he doesn't really know what he wants to like. He like he knows Dickens and you know, his wife wants Bronte or Jane Eyre or something. But he just wants a lot of books. And so he just, the, the bookseller and Mr. Clark, who's there, help him just pick books. And says, so, oh, you should have this. You should have this, this set of, of Meredith, this set of Dickens, this set of that or that. Oh, like European writers. Not American, so I uh, that I have to scold Shirley Jackson for. She should have she should have sold the American writers, you know. Why not more Twain? I think Twain's mentioned here just once, but you know, Melville. <laughs> but anyways, it's mostly English writers, and he buys all these books, and and the guy is gonna like deliver it to the guy's house, and that's it. Um, but he at the end of the the conversation, he says, you know, I really want that Epson, that Seven Types of Ambiguity too. I just like to have this book. And, he, and this bookseller buys it, even though he's promised it to Mr. Clark. And he does this right in front of Mr. Clark. So um, a nice story. Um, it doesn't really fit as thematically with the others. But it does show this kind of the inauthenticity of, of this Mr. Harris, that he doesn't really hold up to his promises, that he is just, um, just a liar at the end. He promised to hold this book for, for Clark until he could save up the money. And he, doesn't. he sells it as soon as he can make money from it. But I, I like that story. Um, 1943, in The New Yorker, she published the final story of part three of the lottery called Come Dance With Me in Ireland. Um, this reminds me a little bit of some of the stories about race in part two, like Dance With Me, 
my dear Alphonse or the flower garden in that you have middle-aged women uh, it, it, jumping to conclusions about people and making assumptions about them that aren't based in reality and then it becoming socially awkward when they do that. Um, so you got these two women um, uh, what's their names? Who cares about their names? Uh, you got these two women in their house and an old man comes to the door and he is selling shoelaces like for a penny each. I, I thought of the match girl in the, was it um, Anderson? The fairy tale? It's Christmas time, so we should reread the match girl. Uh, but I thought of that, you know, this pathetic old, uh, poor person selling really sh low value things for just a little bit of money, right? He's selling shoelaces door to door. And they feel bad for him and they decide to invite him in for dinner and to help him out because he's basically like they think he's just a homeless bum or something and they they invite him over for dinner and he eventually has some drinks and they start to think maybe he's a drunk and maybe he really wants to drink and they have all these assumptions these narratives about this old man that they come to right away just by looking at him and then he starts to say some weird stuff like he knew Yeats he personally knew the poet Yeats and and then he starts like to recite poetry and he starts to insult these old women as basically being like low class themselves and not, you know, they didn't know Yates or something. And he starts to get kind of belligerent with them. And then he walks out, right? So whether he knew Yates or not is not told. I mean, there's so many unreliable narr narrators in the lottery and other stories that, you know, there's no reason to assume he did. But the, the heart of the story is just these assumptions made about this old man, whether he's a drunk or whether he's homeless or whether he's, he needs food or he's uneducated or whatever. And, and the old man, he kind of comes back with his own insults against, against them. But the whole, conver the whole thing is very passive-aggressive again. Uh, we have all this the social politeness is undercovering deep hostility and resentment and, and fear. Um, yeah, really, really nice story. Um, yeah, not very long either. So that is all of part three of the lottery and other stories. So I think I got through it a little bit quicker than I did part one. So that's that's good news. We won't be here all day. Um, so I don't know. Is there a common theme to part three? Uh, we deal with older characters largely. Um, we deal with uh, social, a lot of social awkwardness, a lot of passive aggressiveness. But while part two seemed to have a very strong theme of childhood I don't, I don't i'm not sure quite what the the theme here in part three quite as clearly um maybe if i think about it some more i'll, I'll be able to come up with it or if i reread it with that in mind um all right if you know if you know let me know um last part uh part four also has six stories the epigraph also from sadducemus triumphatus is this we are never liable to be so betrayed and abused till by our vile dispositions and tendencies, we have forfeited the tutelary care and oversight of the better spirits, who though generally they are our guard and defense against the malice and violence of evil angels, yet it may be well enough be thought that sometime they may take their leave of such as are swallowed up by malice, envy, and desire of revenge. Qualities most contrary to their life and nature leave them exposed to the invasion and solicitations of those wicked spirits to whom such hate, hateful attributes make them very suitable. So again, we got this from the Witch Hunter's Guide. This is a bit more optimistic though. It does say there are good angels, good forces that will help people 
So um, that's the good news. The bad news is people are still bound to be uh, fall in with the evil spirits. Okay, so the first story in part four, the final part, uh, is called Of Course. It's published in 1849 for the lottery. Um, basically, the story here is uh, a Miss Tyler, Taylor, Miss Tyler, Tyler, sorry, Miss Tyler uh, goes to visit these new neighbors and they're super weird. Like, they don't use TVs, they don't have like any modern technology in their house. And we, we don't meet the the husband of this other family, but it, the woman's called Mrs. Harris. So obviously the husband is Mr. Harris. And um, she tries to meet them and she goes through all the social niceties of meeting the na new neighbors, but they're just too bizarre. So this attempt to contact the neighbors does not really go very well. So that's, that's pretty much it. So a as this conversation unfolds, most of the story is this conversation between Mrs. Harris and Mrs. Taylor. Um, it's just, it becomes increasingly more horrific for Miss Taylor to imagine the life that these neighbors are living. They realize, I don't want anything to do with these neighbors. But as in so many of these stories, the social niceties has to remain. So it ends up being another story of passive aggressive conversation. Because the necessity to maintain the facade of, of respectability of, of, of proper conduct is more powerful than her visceral desire to get the hell out of this place. Um, but it seems the weirdest thing about them is just their, their behavior is really, really bizarre. Um, let's see if I can find an example of this. Um, like there's a the part where she, they learn she doesn't listen to the radio. I mean, everyone listens to the radio in the 40s, right? That's key. Um, so where is it? We've had such disagreeable people next door to us in our old house. Small things, you know, they do to irritate you so. Miss Taylor sighed sympathetically. The radio, for instance, Mrs. Harris continued, all day long and so loud. Mrs. Taylor caught her breath for a minute. You must be sure and tell us if ours is ever too loud. Mr. Harris can't bear the radio, Mrs. Harris said. We do not own one, of course. Of course, Mrs. Taylor said, no radio. Mrs. Taylor, Mrs. Harris looked at her and laughed uncontrollably. You must be thinking my husband is crazy. I'll jump in here and say, definitely, that's what she's thinking. Um, but Mrs. Taylor says, of course not. After all, lots of people don't like radios. My oldest nephew now, he's just the other way. Uh, so funny. It's really, well, well, it's really humorous. I mean, I think a lot of these stories were sort of like domestic humor stories. It's just when they're put in this collection, they're, they're kind of, they, they have this oddity, this weirdness to them. Maybe if you just read it as one story, it's just kind of a humorous you know, story about awkward conversations, but you know, in the context of stories like *The Demon Lover* or *Renegade*, um, *The Witch*, you just really see how bizarre our lives really are in, in our efforts to try to understand each other. Um, next, we have *Pillar of Salt*, which um, was first published in 1848 in *Mademoiselle*. She published a few stories in *Mademoiselle*. I don't know what *Mademoiselle* was like. Back in the 40s, I've seen it on the newsstands growing up. I haven't looked at one in a long time. I would say a woman's magazine. Um, so we got uh, a, a married couple in this story. Margaret's the main one that we care about. Again, a, a woman. Um, and they go on a trip to New York City. So this story ends up being really about how environment is really key to our comfort and our identity. She's done this a lot, in, especially in part one, with houses. 
the really the core theme of part one is the importance of a house to our own identity and who we are and our comfort. <clears throat> Here, it's done more with the, the city and New York just becomes increasingly weird and challenging for Margaret until she's essentially per, per, paralyzed by the city itself, pretty much literally. Um, so the, the city becomes increasingly creepy as the story goes on. Uh, a few things happen, like they go to a party where there is a fire. Now the fire is put out without any really, really being injured, but it kind of is a bizarre thing. But there's really great scenes of her just struggling to adapt to this new environment of the city. So what's supposed to be a nice uh, travel to the city becomes increasingly worrisome and anxiety-inducing for Margaret. There's like a scene where there, she's on this busy street and everyone's walking, everyone's walking, 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 and she sees like some coins on the ground. Like someone dropped a bunch of coins and she wants to pick them up, but she can't really comf in comfortably bend down because she's kind of terrified and everyone's moving and no one's stopping for the coins. And she ends up like stepping on one of them, like to kind of protect it, you, know, you might do. And But she can't find a moment where she's safe and comfortable to just bend over and pick it up. It's really a well-crafted scene and really um, strikes home. Um, and eventually this new environment leads to to madness. Listen to this wonderful description. Quote, people pushed past her and some were caught in the middle of the street when the light changed. One woman, more cowardly than the rest, turned and ran back to the curb, but the others stood in the middle of the street, leaning forward and then backwards according to the traffic moving past them on both sides. One got to the farthest curb in a brief break in the line of cars. The other were a fraction of a second too late and waited. Then the light changed again and as the car slowed down, Margaret put her foot on the street to go, but a taxi swinging wildly around the corner frightened her back and she stood on the curb again. By the time the taxi had gone, the light was due to change again and she thought, I can wait one more. Once more, no more, no sense getting caught up in the middle. A man behind her tapped his foot impatiently for the light to change back. Two women came past her and walked out into the street a few steps to wait, moving back a little when cars came too close, talking busily all the time. I ought to stay right with them, Margaret thought. Then they moved back against her and the light changed and the man next to her charged into the street and the two girls in front waited a minute and then moved slowly on, still talking and Margaret started to follow and then decided to wait. A crowd of people formed around her suddenly. They had come off the bus and were crossing here and they had a sudden feeling of being jammed and she had a sudden feeling of being jammed in the center and forced onto the street when all of them moved as one with the light changing. And it goes on a little bit, but it's just that the street itself becomes a source of horror and terror for her and, and madness. And eventually she basically goes mad. Um, and she can't even literally move. She has literal paralysis at the end of the story. Um, that's Pillar of Salt. Um, of course, didn't the Pillar of Salt, that's what guided people in Moses' day, right? So she doesn't have that. She doesn't have the Pillar of Salt that's going to guide her through the... Um, it's Pillar of Fire and Pillar of Salt by day, but during the day, right? Uh, uh, who remembers the Bible? Um, but, you know, she doesn't seem to have that because she's totally lost in this city. And it drives her crazy. But, uh, nice story. Yeah, I get none of these I don't, there's none of these I don't like. Some just I like more than others, you know. I guess that's not my favorite, The Pillar of Salt, but ah, these are so good. Um, next, uh, The Ben with Their Big Shoes, first published in 947 in the Yale Review. I think that's the only one that was published in the Yale Review of all these stories. 
Um, this one deals with adultery and gossip. So we have like Mrs. Anderson is the maid and Mrs. Hart is the maid's employer. And, and uh, what happens in the story? Well, she wants to fire Mrs. Anderson. Um, and that's the main plot of the tale. Because, you know, she's not a very good maid, it seems. But Mrs. Hart really can't do it. It's, again, the social niceties get in the way of people doing what they want. So that people resort to these passive-aggressive behaviors. And in this case, it's gossip. Gossip becomes the heart of the story. Not so much the firing drama, because that just that's not going to happen. But it's this gossiping about adultery. Now, Anderson has marital issues, it seems. She has a problem with her husband. Apparently, that's tied to adultery. So... All the gossiping about adultery makes Mrs. Hart increasingly, increasingly uncomfortable about her own relationship. So if you read this story from like working class sympathy, you feel bad for Miss Anderson, who's going to be fired. And you got Mrs. Hart, who's kind of like trying to encourage her to move back in with her family. So she won't need the job anymore, basically trying to get rid of her. And so because she doesn't have the courage to fire her directly. But it's really Anderson who ends up being the, the belligerent because she's able to really get so much under Mrs. Hart's skin by, by just talking about adultery, which is apparently something Mrs. Hart is worried about on some level. So um, that's, that's men with their big shoes. It's, it's a, another story about women, but this one, more than others, they're talking about the men in their lives, and it deals with the adultery issue quite directly. Um, not too many of these tales dealt with it very, dealt with that very directly except this one, I think. Um, so also how the working class person the maid is able to maybe talk more freely about these things than the more bourgeois people. It's one thing I, I perhaps that, that I noticed. Um, so next we have The Tooth, The Tooth, uh, 1948, um, published in the Hudson Review. I got to believe Shirley Jackson must have had a toothache when she wrote this or sometime before because she does a great job describing just how a toothache takes over your life, right? I had a root canal once and I had a, a, a bad tooth that needed to be fixed and when that started going bad i mean the, the, it was the pain was unbearable right i couldn't work i couldn't drive even i, I had to constantly keep water because a little cool water like made it feel better for a while you know and medicine didn't help nothing helped what finally did help was like heart hardcore painkillers which the dentist gave me after he scheduled my root canal and you know my it's just it was really unbearable right now, the, she doesn't get a root canal, she gets the tooth pulled, but it's a very long story and it's kind of grueling because for most of the story, she's got this intense pain in her mouth, um, but it's just described so well. Um, now, what does this tooth represent? Well, it represents changing, it represents aging. That's a common theme in Shirley Jackson's tales here is a woman who's growing up, getting, I'm not growing up, getting older. And what about, what's a better sign of going getting older than you start to lose your teeth and your and they start to fall out or they start to go bad and you have to go to the dentist to get them pulled. Now her encounters with the dentist are typical Shirley Jackson conversations. They're passive aggressive, uh, not very welcoming. They're they're like when she goes to the oral surgeon, it's just like, all right, we're pulling that tooth. No comfort, no sympathy. Just, I mean, from their point of view, it's just a. It's just a conveyor belt of tooth after pull, right? The teeth after pull. Um, you know, I, I think that's that's true. Maybe of a lot of doctor-patient interactions that people have. Um, now, the climax of this story, she finally gets the tooth pulled, and she looks at herself in the mirror, and she has this like this physical transformation in her body, 
kind of drives her to madness. Just the same way as um, in Pillar of Salt, we saw someone driven to madness. Maybe that's the theme of part four, is people being driven to madness. Um, I don't know. They're actually, yeah, I think madness might be a theme in all of these. Maybe not so much of course, but in quite a few of these, you have women being driven to some kind of insanity uh, through um, something bad happening. For Mrs. Hart and men with their big shoes, it's this mere suggestion that adultery is something men do, right? Trying to mix her body. Here in the tooth, it's this physical change you know, of, of losing this, this molar um, and her, how that changes her face. But I think it, it kind of articulates the, the changes that are already going on in her body as she's getting older. So definitely we have a woman going mad by the end of the, of the story, it seems. So that's the tooth. That's a nice story. So next we have Got a Letter from Jimmy. This was published in 1949 for the lottery. Um, the last one, the last of the original tales published for this collection. Um, and this one's a really weird because we don't really know what's quite going on, what the backstory is here. But essentially uh, a man gets a letter from Jimmy, who he seems to hate. And his wife wants to open the letter <clears throat> because of... You know, I think she wants some kind of resolution to whatever um, this Jimmy situation is. The Jimmy situation is is never fully described here and, and explained. It's just all we know is this man hates Jimmy and doesn't even want to read his letter. Now, the wife wants to know what's in the letter, and she she's trying to insist that he open it, but he refuses. And then she, like, at a moment, like, goes from being a, a wife who seems to care about her husband to literally wanting to murder him. She... She has this thought, murderous thought. This this story is only two pages, by the way. It might this might be the shortest. It might even be shorter than um, the other one I talked about, um, the colloquy. About the same length. Let's let's find where she, she she turns. Here, stacking the dishes in the kitchen, she thought maybe he means it. Maybe he could kill himself first. Maybe he really wasn't curious, and even if he were he'd drive himself into a hysterical state trying to read through the envelope locked in the bathroom or maybe he just got it and said oh from jimmy and threw it in his briefcase and forget it i'll murder him if he did she thought i'll bury him in the cellar cool. now saying i'll murder someone or i'll kill you you know people say that all the time kind of in jest or just as a exclamation you usually don't add i'm going to bury him in the cellar you usually don't when you're just joking around about killing someone you don't add the disposal method of the body I don't think. At least I don't recall ever doing that myself. So she seems serious at that moment of really wanting to murder this man. So you go from a, a nice cozy house with a letter coming in. It's all nice. It's We've seen that before in Shirley Jackson's tale, the nice dom domestic setting. And then suddenly murder. Um, and she seems pretty serious about it. Um, in fact, she says, I'm going to murder him in the cellar. And the last paragraph is... I had to open my mouth, she thought. He forgot. The trouble is, she thought, he really did forget. It slipped his mind completely. He never gave it a second thought. If it was a snake, it would have bit him. Under the cellar steps, she thought, with her head bashed, with his head bashed in and his goddamn lender under his folded arms. And it's worth it, she thought. Oh, it's worth it. So by the end of the story, she doesn't abandon these murderous thoughts, this fantasy of him being killed. All because of a letter. All because of a letter that he doesn't want to open that she's curious about. Some deep-seated resentment here, obviously. Um, and then finally, we have the lottery. 
This was published in 1948 in The New Yorker. This made Shirley Jackson quite famous because of the response to it. Now, she wrote a lot of stories for The New Yorker, and a lot of them are just as bizarre as this one, worse in some ways, but this is the one that elicited the reaction. So I'm going to talk about this um, biography of the story, just briefly. I'm not going to do an analysis of it all, but it's, it's, it's included in this collection, so I thought I'd mention it. This was a talk she would often give publicly when talking about the lottery or before reading stories, and it just talks about the responses she got, and she includes quotes from a lot of the letters um, that people had that were bothered by um, the story. Like, some people asking questions like, is this a real thing? Are there communities somewhere in Pennsylvania that really do this? Others are kind of more bothered by this story um, about the, the lynching of a, of a person, right? And you know, calling, accusing her of publicity stunts or accusing her of being hyperbolic or, or being vicious on, on purpose. It's a, it's a nice little thing. I'm sure you can find it online. It's called Biography of a Story. It, most of it is these quotes from these letters she received from people that apparently hated this story or had deep curiosity. They were, it had the biggest response of any of her stories. Um, and so she felt, you know, she had to mention it. Now, in the lottery, the story, of course, you probably read it, is you have this nice, quaint community in apparently contemporary America set off like a small village somewhere of 300 people or so and they're all picking it's like a festival day and they're all picking stones from the, you know like it's the lottery right they're picking these stones and the one who gets like the right one or gets called will be publicly lynched right now there is of course racial connotations here there was active lynchings going on so this idea is there really a place like this in america that just randomly you know murders people for no reason yes there was it was called the south um that you know lynching was ongoing in america not not like the heyday of the 20s but by the 40s there were still lynchings and after world war ii there was a revival of racial violence um, throughout America. So yes, this really did happen. It's just not as described in the story necessarily. But yes, random people were, were lynched for a variety of reasons, but maybe not totally random. Often lynchings were, were targeting certain people, but still in the sense that mob violence you know, was, taking, was taking place under the justification of social order. Now, we read the lottery through the, the standpoint of one woman, who Mrs. Hutchinson, who is the one who gets picked, and changes her mind at the end of the day, saying, whatever value this has, it's, you know, it's, it's not worth it. It's not fair. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me of a really wonderful story by Ursula K. Le Guin called uh, Those Who Walk Away from Omelis, where you have a utopia described, but the utopia is contingent on, on one suffering boy in a room. Read that story. Do it. Um, now, that's a much more optimistic tale in that it, it does acknowledge that some people can't accept this and walk away. We don't get that in the lottery. In the lottery, everyone seems to accept it. It's just a yearly ritual, right? Um, and sometimes people are victims of it, right? It's like that story we looked at in the science fiction anthology where, you know, you have an overpopulated city and just every a few times a week, a few hundred thousand people are just killed um, in a technology that locks off, basically gases a certain number of people in a tunnel. Um, and everyone accepts it because the city is overpopulated, but a certain number of people are going to die every uh, week based on that. And it might be you. Who knows? It's the same just like driving, right? 
we all consent to driving and a certain number of us are going to die every day in traffic accidents. We didn't vote on that. Um, so there's truth in the lottery. And and I, that's why I think it's kind of interesting about the people who took the story maybe too literally and didn't really um, get at what she was trying to say. Now, how does it fit in with the other stories? Well, I think a tranquil bourgeois setting a comfortable setting, a comfortable setting, a nice house, a nice town, under the surface is, is vicious. And once you get past that very thin facade, you have evil and passive aggressive uh, conversations and uh, jealousy and petty grievances and, and vindictiveness right under the surface of your, right under your nose. And the lottery just comes out and does it. We're just going to straight up murder someone. We're going to take our nice little town and we're going to straight up murder someone every year. Um, so, yeah. Um, I think it fits in with the rest of the stories. But on its own, I think it really is a story of, of just the randomness of, of violence in in our otherwise normal world, right? Yeah. Just like the Joker in the, the Dark Knight, right? When the, soldier, the troops of soldiers get blown up and everyone goes fine right you know, everyone goes on with their lives but if something comes out of you know a horrific thing outside the plan happens and people freak out i think he's right that's a wise wise observation the joker made all right um that's the collection the, the collection ends with an epigraph or an epilogue which is just a retelling of a reprinting of the demon lover um the story of jim harris from the old english child book of child's ballads it's not from the american story the house carpenter maybe that's what i use to use for my um bumpers for the for these episodes i don't know but too late now uh so really really great so i very very much recommend you read the lottery by shirley jackson not just the story not just the story it's not even my favorite in this tale in this in the collection read all of them um they're all good and they're all worth your time. So next, in the next episode, I will be looking at The Haunting of Hill House. For the next two episodes, I'll be looking at The Haunting of Hill House. Um, yeah, so read it uh, if you want. If you haven't read it, that's another thing. I recommend reading that too. Read this whole book. Shirley Jackson's great. She's a national treasure. Um, didn't write so much, but... And all, all, all our great works fit in one slim volume, so 700, 800 pages. So yeah, read them all, but definitely The Lottery, definitely The Haunting of Hill House. Um, very influential book. Influenced Stephen King quite a lot, uh, especially his early works. You can't, I mean, she's quoted, this book, The Haunting of Hill House was quoted in the like first page of Salem's Lot. So very, very influential to Stephen King. Other horror writers, The Haunted House genre. Really, really wonderful. So, um, yeah, that's what I'll start talking about next time. I'm looking forward to it. So um, that's it for now. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And if you have any of your own questions or comments, you can contact me. You know how. Um, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Listen to me, I got the words, I got the tune. I'd like to prune it under the moon, but I got nobody.
to hear my song, so I'm coming. 